Pavel Martinez is a New Yorker, a former tech executive, the host of the Kin to Eris podcast, and a rebel. A year ago, he posted his salary on social media. That move shocked people, and it went viral. Three million people saw his salary. Later, he went public with his story about quitting his lucrative, high-powered job at TikTok to recover his authenticity, his mental health, and to fight for equity for the Latinx professional community. With his irreverent, lively style, Pavel gets more fans for his podcast every day, fans who never miss an episode. And maybe that's because his show asks listeners the question Pavel was asking himself and his guests. Kin to Eres, who are you? Let's see the real you. And let's stand up for the real you. Meet the man who understands that we all need the encouragement of others to do hard things and that hosting a podcast can help. Pavel Martinez next on Sound Judgment, where we investigate just what it takes to become a beloved podcast host by pulling apart one episode at a time together. I'm Elaine Appleton-Grant. Ever since I talked with Pavel, I find that his conversation keeps popping into my head. He talks freely about rebelling against the unwritten rules that keep people of color from being themselves in the corporate world. Rules that govern fashion, hair, choices of pop culture and style, and what he saw as an unwritten rule that was hurting his community, not talking about money. That decision to go public with his salary, he made it on Latina Pay Day, a day designated to draw attention to the dramatic pay inequity between Latinas and white men. Those posts evoked a wide range of reactions, from gratitude, some people thanked him for helping them negotiate higher salaries, to anger from corporate executives who said he should have kept it private. We jumped right into the big stuff. So, Pavel, there are a lot of ways for hosts to make shows that stand out. And one of them is to go on a mission, to go against the grain and call out something that needs attention and try to change it. And uh, am I right that that's really where you're coming from? A hundred percent. I very early on decided to make it my mission to redefine professionalism. And it was personal, but it's been fascinating to see how many people resonate with it. And because people resonate with it, I think that's really been the catalyst for the growth. Uh Uh-huh. Tell me about the growth, actually. It's wild to think about it, but... The Game Do It is podcast is in the top 2% of all podcasts globally. It's been because, one, a lot of people resonate with the mission, but the stories that we share on the podcast, a lot of them go untold out of fear. And if they are told these workplace experiences, they're often told anonymously. So it's it's really like one of the first times where people are talking talking openly about their experience around professionalism versus authenticity. Well, let's talk about that. What I'd love to do is just have you, you know, sort of briefly sum up the origin story of the podcast and give a little context for listeners who may not have heard it. It's fascinating. When you look at the data, it says that 76% of Latinos at work suppress parts of their identities. 76%. That is three out of every four employees. And when you look at the data, A lot of times it referenced like, well, why do they hide their identity? Like, what are they trying to align to? And it's often to align to white male standards, because when you think of the word professionalism or executive presence, that's what you often think about. I have been trained to believe from friends, family, 
academic institutions growing up that who I am as an individual, many parts of my identity were unprofessional. From the high school I went to that told me I had to shave all the facial hair below my earlobe, from them banning traditional black hairstyles like afros and braids and dreads and locks, to that being reiterated when I entered the workforce and I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me. And people that did look like me, they were faking it just as much as I was. So I wanted to create a podcast that showed people that you didn't necessarily have to assimilate to um, do your best work. So every week we have a new guest talk about that assimilation journey early on. And then eventually when they got to the point where they realized that it was just a waste of time. So you were a global account director at TikTok. And um, I know about a year ago, you chose to make your salary and your bonuses and your title and your location public and that on social media and that went viral. You'd already started the podcast though. So tell me about the connection between going public like that and the podcast itself. Yeah. So the podcast launched in 2020. And again, if you go back to the data, like 76% of Latinos suppress parts of their identities at work. I was part of that 76%. And I went to the extent of like deep assimilation. Like I used to study, I used to dedicate days out of the week to study white popular American culture because I thought it would help me avoid racism and microaggressions and all of these things, right? And um, I read that about you. And I, I thought that was utterly fascinating that you actually made it a conscious choice to study that. That was that was amazing. But go ahead. Yeah. And, and, and the fascinating thing is that I'm not alone. A lot of people do it. They just don't talk about it. But I would tell people about these experiences and they would give me the same reaction. They would be like, oh my God, it must, it must just be you doing this. And I was like, oh my God, you don't even know how different of a work experience it is for me versus you. So that plus the reason I was doing it was because I didn't see people that looked like me being their authentic selves. The representation I saw of people looking like me that were successful were, were doing the same things. They were lying about their weekends. They were studying white culture. They were like doing all these things to because they thought that's what they needed to do to be successful. So I wanted to show people examples, representation of people being their authentic selves that look like them. And uh, it started with me sharing other people's experiences, but the more frustrated I became, the more I started sharing my own experiences. And the most popular episodes that I've done on the podcast have been me sharing my own story and experience versus me sharing other people's experience. That is fascinating. How scary was that? It's funny because every episode I would joke with a guest and say like, hey, they're not here for me. They're here for the listen to your story. And one guest at one point said, is that really true? Like, yeah, I'm, you bring on great guests, but like people continue to listen to your podcast because it's the same host every episode. They're like, why don't you share more of your experience? Why don't you share more of your story? And I was avoiding it for a long time. To this day, I still avoid it. And I make it a goal of like, oh, every month I'm going to do my own story, my own experience of what's happening in my life. But I put that episode off every time. I intentionally share other people's stories because sometimes it's not easy for me to do it. That said, I think the more vulnerable I am, the bolder I am, the more fearless I am with my perspectives and, and the actions that I take, the more that people feel more comfortable sharing their story. So there is a lot of power in that. Give me an example of the scariest thing that you shared about your own story and the response to it. Sharing my salary transparently was probably one of the scariest things I've done. And 
for a few reasons. I wrote in that post, like no one knew how much money I made, like not even my mom. And it's interesting too, because my mom was an administrative assistant for most of her career until she retired. And she used to do my taxes growing up, but they, there became a point where I had family tell me, stop telling your mom how much money you make. That was just advice that I was given. And it's very similar advice that we receive in corporate, right? So my mom for a long time didn't know how much money I made. My partner didn't know how much money I made. So for the first, like I was going to tell the world how much money I made, which doesn't sound like a big deal. But if you think about it, like no one talks about it openly. So my mom swore like someone who was going to like show up to my apartment and like rob me and stuff like that. But the bigger fear for me was like, oh shit, people have been fired for much less. Like what if I get fired from my job? What's going to be the reaction from the executive team? What's going to be the reaction from anybody like and again it's not like i'm launching or like releasing company secrets it's just like me posting my w2 essentially but that was terrifying i'm telling you to the point where i didn't poop for the entire week oh gosh <laughs> <laughs> was it at all more nerve-wracking to talk about it to use your voice on the podcast than it was to write about it on social media it was because i had more time and more space to talk about it. And in that post, I talked about a company directly, whereas in the LinkedIn post, it was just like, hey, this is my salary. This is why I'm doing it. I didn't talk about the my reception to it because it was too soon. I just did the post. The podcast episode is more like, this is the reaction that I got from people. So it, it was nerve wracking as someone who was still employed at the company. I mean, eventually you left TikTok mm -hmm. and you said, publicly, I found a bigger purpose. Was there a connection between whatever reaction these executives had and you finally leaving? Of course. Like I said, there was a consistent theme of companies saying, bring your most authentic self to work. We will accept you for who you are and all these things. Yet I try to do it and I don't feel accepted. I don't feel supported. I don't feel safe, um, especially in that interaction with the executive. But it was just a continuous feeling of like trying to censor me, making me feel ashamed and all these things. So I was just like, if I really want to create the change that I want to see in the world, I'm going to have to do this on my own terms. So I took the risk and um, I quit. Which I'm sure was very scary. Has it been worth it? I mean, till this day, it's scary. I was at the point financially where like I was not only supporting myself really well, but I, I was paying all my mom's bills too. And yeah, I had to let that go. It was like one of the most difficult conversations that I've had to have. It was like, mom, I can't support you for like at least a year, but it's been worth it. Like the mental health has improved. Overall health has improved my motivation, my ambition, all of those things. What a tough, like a sort of Sophie's choice in a way, you know, your own mental health, your own mission versus, but you're supporting your mother. That I just, that must have been enormous. It makes me a little teary, actually. Listen, at TikTok, I used to close like, I'm talking about like multi-million dollar deals. And like, it drove zero fulfillment for me. But I tell you, like, when I posted my salary transparently, for example, and then you get a DM on LinkedIn from a fellow young Dominican, and he says, wow, I never knew that someone that looked like me could make that much money more fulfillment that I would ever get in a year's working at, at one of those companies. 
I first heard about you when I read your first person ad age piece, which was published in September. Nancy Reyes guest edited that series. She's CEO of TBWA Chiat Day New York, which is a very prominent advertising agency. And she said, I stay tuned for every episode of this podcast. Pavel has somehow turned the oppressions we face into a mural of what it's like to be Latinos in the corporate world, provocative, emotive, and authentic. And then you went on to say in that same piece, a couple of really important things. First was, even when we build the courage to unlearn what we've been taught and we embrace our authenticity, we are often met with resistance, including and not limited to microaggressions, sexism, and racism. As a result, these workplace experiences often go untold. If the experiences are shared, then they are typically shared anonymously, as you just said, out of fear of judgment or retaliation. And you went on to say the podcast serves as a safe space to share our experiences while educating the world about professionalism. Do you ever have trouble getting the guests that you want, especially as your podcast has become more and more popular? You know, guests are likely to think, well, so many people are going to hear my story. I can't tell that story publicly. How are you navigating that? Great question. And what's interesting is that I have a guest that is going to come on the podcast very soon who I had to honor the fact that she wanted to remain anonymous. And I don't do this often. In fact, I've only had one other anonymous person, but I am going to honor it just to reiterate that this is a problem. The fact that this person doesn't want to share their name or face just shows that there's a problem. But most often, people are willing to come out publicly because of the mission and the vulnerability of myself, the host. It's interesting too, I do a lot of speaking engagements at various companies, a lot of tech companies. And most tech companies, they have these like internal services or even like hotlines, they'll call it, where if something happens to you, you can anonymously report it. Funny thing about these anonymous hotlines is that underrepresented groups, Black and Latinos in particular, are under-indexed in those hotlines. Why? There's no trust factor. But these are organizations with billions of dollars in the bank. They can't even create programs to get people to feel safe enough to share their experiences. Meanwhile, by me being vulnerable enough and, and courageous enough to do a lot of things that I do, without paying them, People are open to just come out publicly and share it on our platform. So I'm very proud of that. Has anybody ever said no? I, I just I just can't do it. Yes, but not because of the platform of the story, more so because of a time commitment. Oh, really? That's very interesting. I mean, it's it, it's not analogous, but it's interesting, I think. A few years ago, I did a series on the Tulsa Race Massacre for American history tellers, which, you know, 1921, it's, it's more than a hundred years in history. Now people didn't want to talk about that a hundred years ago. And so I recognize how incredibly difficult this is. Plus just, I think most hosts who are dealing with things that are personal, that are emotive, that have to do with our survival and our fulfillment run into this. Candor is hard. Authenticity is like the most used buzzword in podcasting and people throw it around like it's easy and it's hard. 
It's very difficult. I think it's even difficult for you to figure out like what that means to you. It's the first question I actually ask in every episode. And it's fascinating that for a word that is used so often, not one person has shared the same definition for what it means to them. I was going to ask you that. In fact, let me play a clip. All right. Well, let's start off where we always start off with the word authenticity. For you, when you hear the word, what comes to mind for you? What does it mean to you? So for me, authenticity is being able to be who I am, like truly who I am and not being reprimanded by it. So I'm not trying to be someone else in order for me to fit in. So that's what authenticity means. It's a word that's supposed to be supposed to mean, you know, being who you are. But sometimes when you are who you are, you encounter a lot of problems because you are supposed to act a different way in order for you to be accepted. And you're shaking your head. Tell me what you're feeling as you listen back to that. The word that stuck out to me instantly when I heard it was being reprimanded. I I noticed that, of course, uh, that you picked up on that word reprimanded. And let me play another clip. Yo, reprimanded? That's That's a powerful word. Sounds like you had consequences. What were some of those early experiences maybe growing up when you're trying to be yourself and you were reprimanded? There were a couple of interesting things about that. First of all is you had to interrupt her to ask that question. You know, just interrupting someone is a cultural thing. Did you have to train yourself to interrupt that it was okay? That part is difficult. And I think when interviewing someone or having a conversation with someone, like two of the things that are really difficult but needed is being a good listener and picking up on certain words that are said, right? Like she went on to explain what authenticity meant to her. I just happened to pick up on reprimanded. So for me, I was like, oh, that's a follow-up question. But also I think some people, some guests have a tendency to just like speak for a long time, whereas like, hey, you already answered the question. But I don't I ugh, I don't know. I feel comfortable doing it some sometimes, but sometimes I am conscious of like, oh my God, I'm a man. This may be triggering to her if I like interrupt right here, but it's so important to the conversation. I need to do it because we have to talk about it because you just mentioned it. So it is a little push and pull of like an internal dialogue that I have with myself. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it from the perspective of a man talking to a woman, but you're absolutely right. And it's very conscious of you to to even think of that piece of it. I was thinking more that, you know, we're all trained to be, especially as professionals, we're all trained to be very polite. And politeness, in my view, gets in the way a, a fair number of times of serving the listener, especially because guests often do have that tendency to go on and on and on and on and on. It's like, oh my God, why didn't this person take control of this conversation? But more than that, that that I found very interesting is that you went directly to early experiences. And um, I have a clip on that. So I go in there and I see that you have, uh, there was a communications major and then a hospitality major. And I always lean into communication. I wanted to have my own TV show. And I remember going back to my grandmother and saying, well, I think I found what I wanted to do. Like, I want to be on TV. Like, that's what I want to do. I want to have my own show. I want to interview people. And I remember she looked at me and she like told me, well, why do you think you're going to have a chance on TV? Like people like us are not on TV. Right. And that was kind of my first instance in me knowing that because I looked a certain way or I could, I mean, I couldn't be authentic in order for me to fit in. I needed to choose other type of professions. And that was like one of the beginnings. Oh, there was an earlier beginning before that. 
So Wait, I, I but, think that, uh-huh. but what does she mean by people like us, though? Because you were living Afro in the Dominican. Afro-Latinas, Black women in a Hispanic uh-huh. community. How does that feel? Damn, that, that was a good episode. <laughs> All right. I neglected to ask you, which I usually ask right from the get-go, is tell me an episode that you either loved or that was very challenging to make. And why did you select this particular episode as as one of a couple that you offered? Oh, yeah, that was that was a good episode. But I'm also thinking like, damn, I interrupt people a lot. <laughs> In a great way. In a great way, actually. I mean- Thank you. Yeah, I think I think it's valuable. I think part of my anxiety is that like, I'm having a thousand thoughts running through my head and I'm just like, I'm so curious. I have to ask like, wait, wait, why did you do that? Wait, what did you do? Yeah, that, that was a great episode. And, and for a few different reasons, I think we touched on a lot of important things, but I think you also asked an interesting question too, is like, well, why didn't you ask her about that specific instance where she got reprimanded? But one of the things that I'm very conscious of and is a point that I want to make is that we've been taught to assimilate before we even start working, right? And we've been told what our potential and our cap for success is at a very early age before we start working. And I don't think we talk enough about the impact that our family and our early years have on our self-beliefs and what we can do with our potential. Yeah. And in fact, just quite the story about being eight years old and meeting her mother, who she didn't grow up with. And one of the first experiences was her mother saying, we have to straighten your hair and saying, but I love my curls. They're who I am. It was very powerful. And I, that's what I was going to ask you about, actually, is that you're illustrating the squeeze that uh, people of color feel because they're getting the, the messages from you know the dominant culture and a whole bunch of messages from whatever culture they're from. And that's a hard place to be. And I think in particular, my friend Denise Soler-Cox, who was a a guest on your show, that's what she talks about all the time, is changing those beliefs that we get and, and just illuminating it, just talking about it. My understanding is people don't talk about that side, even less than they talk about the corporate culture. A thousand percent. And the problem, the biggest problem with us not talking about our experiences is that we feel alone, right? And when we feel alone, we feel like we're the problem, but we're not the problem. Like in that specific instance about her hair, like her hair is not unprofessional. Her hair is not the problem. The problem is larger. It's a macro level, society level issue with with our current perception of what professionalism is. I always tell people, look up the definition of professionalism. It's defined as the skill or competence expected of a professional. That's it, skill or competence. So when we tell when we tell someone that they look unprofessional, what we're telling them is that I don't believe you have the necessary skill or competence to do this role. Yeah, yeah. And I enjoy that part of your episodes where I'm hearing about the family stories. You know, it's it's illuminating. It's interesting. It's very, they're, they're so real. Uh, you know, I love hearing about like, here's what happened to me when I was eight years old. Let me take you to that place where my mother is, is brushing my hair and saying, I can't keep my curls. It's, it's very powerful. Um, 
what I want to do is play one more clip. And I think it's maybe at the heart of your whole show. And then I've got a few questions that I always ask. You have the courage and the audacity to say, no, I'm, I am faculty or no, I'm not your assistant. Like call me what I am. Like a lot of people in that survival mode would have been like, just let it go. They would just, oh, don't worry about it. Let me just collect my checks. Like what, what gave you the courage to just be like, no, like to stand up for yourself. Like that's, that's something that a lot of people don't do, unfortunately. So you called that out and you saw that in her, uh, my understanding is she, she was a professor and they weren't allowing her to call herself faculty. She's got a PhD and someone was calling her their assistant when being introduced. Just tell me your feelings about that. Just hearing that back. What, what does it prompt for you? I cringe because I, I think about my own experience in times where I wasn't courageous enough to do anything. You know, I went for an interview earlier in my career and, you know, I walked in, I got a suit on looking a dapper and sit down for the interview. And, and the person across from me says, listen, like you, you got all the necessary skills. I'm sure you could do the job. Let me ask you a question. Like, what's your favorite Jordan? And I was like, what? He was like, yeah, the sneaker. Like, which one would you like wear? I was like, I mean, that that's presumptuous in my head. I didn't say anything. But I really wanted the job. I was like, oh, you know, the 11s. Like, those are my favorite. Oh, the, the I'm sorry, the 12s, the red and white ones. Oh, I would love those, right? And I was like, all right, this is clearly a question that is not asked of everyone. At least that's the story I tell myself. I'm like, all right, he's probably going to ask me about my experience next. No, he follows up. He says, well, all right, let's say rappers. Like, who would you prefer listening to? Like, J. Cole or Kendrick Lamar? And I'm like, this motherfucker's bold. But again, I answer the question, why? I really want that job. We have a conversation. We barely talk about my experience. The interview's over. Now he leaves. The HR person comes in and says like, oh my God, how was the four rounds of interviews that you had? Like, hopefully everything was good. And I was like, oh my God, everyone's so nice here. Why? Listen, we all do things at some point in our career because we need the money. We need the opportunity. I regret that. I wish I reported him. I wish I did something because who knows who else that happened to? Who knows how deeper or more insulting some of those questions got? And again, definition of racism, treating someone differently because of the color of their skin. I don't know what the other interviews went like, but, I pro but I'm pretty sure that that's not a standard interview question, either one of those. But when I got really comfortable, like standing up for myself, being authentic, all those things, I had to let go of the fear of being fired. That was a big thing I had to let go. I didn't want to get fired. Let's be clear. But I had to let go of the fear. I'm saying if I report this guy, it's something that needs to be done, even if I have to look for another opportunity. You have stated, I think it was in that Ad Age article, that basically the thing that's going to give an individual courage is to show the stories of many people, which is something over 100 episodes that you have done. Have you seen this belief bear out that, you know, it takes all of us to help one person gain the courage to be themselves? Oh, for sure. I mean, there, there's that saying is like, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. I've, you know, at various speaking engagements, people have come up to me, people have wrote LinkedIn articles, people have done like a bunch of different 
ways to communicate the fact that like, wow, I listened to that episode and starting from that day, I started being more authentic. Um, it almost like gives us permission when we see somebody do it of like, oh, well, if they're doing it, then maybe I can do it. So seeing that representation is is very important. And it's not only my job to like share the stories and the experiences, but also to scale it to make sure that people see it. Because what's the point of publishing it if no one sees it or listens to it and is impacted by it? How has hosting this podcast changed you in ways that you didn't expect? It's made me more empathetic. Uh, I can only hold so many identities as a as a Dominican, as a as a, as a as a son, as a as a straight male. Um, there are so many instances of people hiding their identity and suppressing parts of their authenticity that I never thought about. For example, I interviewed one woman, Clara Johnson, who said that for a long time at work, she hid the fact that she was a mom. I was like. Oh, I didn't I didn't know people were hiding that. So stories like that have opened my eyes into what those untold stories and anonymous stories really are. Like who are those people? What do you now know about hosting that you didn't know a hundred episodes ago that you wish you'd known? People really need these stories and experiences. At first, I kind of wanted to tell the stories, one, to feel seen and heard, but also just to like let people know like, hey, y'all, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one faking it. Like, listen, coworkers, I told you about my experience. You didn't believe me that there were other people. Hey, there's more people like me. I didn't realize the impact that it would have on people's careers. Like I said, like people don't start doing their best work until they let go of the assimilation because there's an opportunity cost to it. Like we're literally only performing at maybe a certain number of capacity, half our capacity, because the other half we're spending on being actors, right? So if we stop being that, we can just do our work. So if I realized that sooner, I would have started this a lot sooner as well. Oh, that's great. And I, and I want to just say that you have made a point that corporate America especially is missing out on a lot of talent because of this. I'm an example. I quit, but there are people that haven't quit that still want to work at the organization that are doing great work, but could be driving a lot more impact at your organization. Exactly. Who is your dream guest for Sound Judgment, a host you would like to hear from? A host that I would like to hear. Oh my God. I would like to hear from, uh, I'm forgetting her name, but she's the host. It, it, her name, like go-to name, stage name, whatever you want to call it, is Wheezy. She is on the podcast called Horrible Decisions, and she talks a lot about normalizing conversations around sex. She was doing this podcast for a while while working a corporate job, and just that experience of like, oh my God, like, were you nervous that people were going to hear it? Like, were you scared that like your boss was going to hear it? Like, all of those sort of things um, as she was blown up before she quit her job, um, and like, what motivates her to continue doing it? That would be pretty fascinating. Pavel, thank you so much for all your time this morning. This has been just really interesting. And and congratulations on the success of the show and the growth of the show. Thank you. Appreciate for having me. At the end of every episode, I try to give you just a few of the many takeaways from these conversations. Here are a few from today. You'll find many more in the show notes. One, interrupting is often helpful. And we need to learn how to do it deftly. 
Interrupting is cultural. It's governed by what we consider polite, which is different everywhere. My husband, who is from Ohio, where everyone is awfully nice, used to be horrified by what I see as my enthusiasm, which means I interrupt far more often than he does. I grew up in Boston and later New York. The skill of interrupting may seem pretty small, inconsequential even, but it's not. It's about being a host who can create a good flow to a conversation and stay in control of it so you can serve your listeners. Two, this one's bigger. Is there an injustice you see, one that's not being addressed? You can use a podcast to fill that need, both by having the courage to share your own difficult story and by setting the stage for guests to share their untold stories on your show. Representation matters. We know this, but Pabell is showing it. Listeners tell Pabell that because of Kentu Eris, they no longer feel alone, and that gives them strength to make changes they didn't have the courage to do before. That response says a lot about the connection a host on a mission can create with their audience. Can you help your audience know they're not alone? Three, do you remember the story that Pabell told me about having to tell his mother that he couldn't support her anymore because he was quitting this plum job? It was really tough. And it was only eight minutes into our conversation. I had never met Pabell before, and yet I found myself brushing away tears. I felt like I knew Pabell's heart. That's hostiness. And what I realized is that who we are as human beings has everything to do with who we are on the mic. If we are courageous, it shows. If we know who our listeners are and love them, it shows. If we are ashamed of something in our lives and that holds us back from expressing our full selves as hosts, it shows. If we're making our podcast or giving our speech or writing our story solely to support our business and make money purely for our own ends, it shows. It doesn't matter if we're actually sharing personal stories or not. Listeners hear and respond to our character in our voices, regardless of the format. So Pabell's question, kin to Eris, applies to all of us. Before you turn on the mic, spend some time with his question, who are you? I was a writer long before I came to the audio world. As a producer for an NPR syndicated show, two hours live every day with callers almost 20 years ago. That was exhilarating and scary, and I've loved every day in audio storytelling since then. If you love the creative process like I do, I know you'll love Sound Judgment, the newsletter. Sign up for it at podcastallies.com and never miss an episode of the podcast again and get a lot more takeaways from my quest to uncover the mysterious qualities of hostiness. Sound Judgment is produced by me, Elaine Appleton-Grant. Sound design by Andrew Perella. Our gorgeous cover art is by Sarah Edgel. Project management by the inimitable Tina Basir. We're off next week for Thanksgiving. I'm very grateful to you for being here with me. Don't miss our next episode on December 1st with the phenomenal Anne Bogle of the wildly popular show, What Should I Read Next? See you then, and happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.